Hello and welcome back to the Game Changer podcast and in today's episode I've been lucky enough to be joined by UEFA A football coach and sports business owner Mark Woodhall. In today's episode we talk about his experiences as a football coach, the challenges he's faced since going self-employed as well as the importance of sports participation. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Anyways, let's get to it. Hello and welcome back to the Game Changer podcast and today I've been lucky enough to be joined by Mark Woodhall. Mark, first of all, welcome on to the podcast. Thanks Jordan, um, very nice to be here and thank you very much for the invite, very kind of you. No problem, um, as you can tell most of the episodes have been very random so far, so we've had an entrepreneur, then I've had a BBC broadcaster, now I've got you Mark, so I like, a mix. Quite well. I like, a, I like a mix it up a bit. Uh, just for everyone to keep them uh, on their toes. Mark, do you uh, want to quickly, briefly explain what you do or what you've done over the past couple of years, just for those who yeah. don't know you? Yeah, um, oh, well, currently uh, I'm into my second year of having my own business, um, which is Facility and Sports Club Development Services Limited. Um, that has been preceded by having a 16-year career with Northumberland FA in a range of different roles from Football Development Officer County Development Manager uh, and a brief stint as Acting Chief Executive um, for four months when we went through a bit of a transition. Um, been coaching since I was around 15, 16 years of age. Started off at the Football Development Scheme at Newcastle, um, working with a couple of colleagues who you may well know, one of them being Barney Jones and the other one John Carver. Um, and also a lot of my time was spent being coached at the same time by another coach who's been at Newcastle United as well, Rob Atkin. Um, and certainly in terms of um, working with coaches from a young age, you know, you probably couldn't have three better examples. Um, and a lot of what they did, I've tried to instill into to what I do in my previous job, um, but also continuing that through my coaching career as well. Spot on. Very, very good background within sport then. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so throughout lockdown, how, how have you been coping? Have you adapted from your normal schedule yet? Yeah, it's it's been an interesting one. Obviously, we we have a little one who's uh, who turned four yesterday. Um, so when when lockdown started, um, obviously my wife's a, a deputy head teacher in a primary school. So we made the decision that um, she was on a rotor basis. So every other week she was in work full time, uh, and I would look after Charlie and try and keep the business running in the meantime. And to be fair, we we had probably ten eleven weeks where it was pretty quiet. Um, homeschooling is a challenge with a three-year-old when you're not a teacher um, so I've learned all sorts of new things and a few different words um, not sure what he's learned um, but also tried to keep the business going on an evening so we would do the work and, and a bit of play with a little one during the day trying to do a bit of school work and then pretty much maintain the business um, on an evening so it meant long days um, but now we've started June um, when lockdown's been released a little bit we've started to get more projects coming back online. Um, so all of our stuff was almost parked. Um, but now it's coming back online. We're getting some new new inquiries, which is great. Um, the ongoing long-term projects are, are now ticking along as well and starting to come back online. So we've we've had a, a busy three, four weeks so far and, and long may that continue, hopefully. Spot on. So for those uh, wanting to know a bit about your business, 
Do you just want to tell everyone what you specialize in and also why you chose to set up your business? Um, yeah, I mean, the business itself is, is very much to support grassroots organizations, sports organizations to meet their aspirations and achieve them. So that can range from a various different um, set of almost goals, I suppose. Um, we work in governance to support off the field activity and off the pitch activity, making sure that their governance is correct, getting them set up correctly, appropriately, working through child protection, all of that. And then predominantly we are on facility development. So we work on project managing and consultancy on 3G pitches, clubhouses, actual turf pitches uh, across a range of different sports. So we, we predominantly work in football, um, mm -hmm. but we've been very fortunate to be able to work across cricket, rugby, netball, uh, tennis. Um, and fingers crossed in the next three or four months, we may get a, a project in hockey. So whilst the background is predominantly football, and that's where my background's been, um, we're trying to get across all sports now to give them almost, a, I, I suppose, a, a one-stop shop from initial conception of an idea right the way through to delivery at the other end. Um, the decision, I suppose, was a, a, an interesting one. If I take myself back uh, 25, 24, 25 months, something like that, um, my position at the county FA was made redundant due to a restructure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I haven't had a background for seven or eight years as, as CDM, County Development Manager, and acting chief executive, my background became very much specialised in facility development and strategic planning. Um, and effectively, that's what I've done for myself rather than just for football on behalf of the county FA. So it's really just a transition of transferable skills through from what I was doing for one sport and, and moving them across into a range of different sports. Mm -hmm. So throwing it back all the way to when you were younger, what made you choose the career within sport? Did anyone have inspire you or push you down that route um I, i've always loved sport you know from being from being three and four year old i was always engaged in sport my mum and dad were really fortunate and and encouraged me to do that um predominantly in football and tennis so uh, i was weirdly i was probably a better tennis player than i was a footballer and then i got to 14 and didn't grow so you've got to be six foot plus to be a decent tennis player these days so it was a choice between probably football and tennis to play Injury curtailed that, so that was uh, really a, a decision that was taken out of my hands. It's then a case of, right, what do I want to spend the rest of my life doing? Um, and because you have a love of sport, which I don't think you ever leave, you know, being involved in a sporting context in whatever level and being able to provide something to sport is something that I've always been very passionate about. And to, mm -hmm. to manage to have a living of too many years to remember so far, um, involved in sport is, is you know, I'm really pleased with it. Um, it's an interesting one when you talk about inspiration because I think inspiration goes from not only your family, your friends, uh, it can be people you have contact with, you know, externally, but also um, diverse things such as, you know, when you, we look in lockdown in terms of inspiration, the next few phases of the lockdown release will result in hopefully uh, a big impact that sport will play on people's mental health and well-being. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, the inspiration to continue the business to move it on is those key workers, teachers, doctors, nurses, all of those guys who've been on the front line to give them an opportunity to play a sport as and when they can, but use it as a vehicle to, to hopefully come out the other end mm -hmm. in better shape. Spot on. So you briefly touched upon the FA there. Um, how did you first get involved with the FA then? Um, it was weird. I was, I was working for, for Barney, for Barney Jones after coming out of university and going, right, I've got to get a job now. Um, 
And I was Sounds familiar. Like, well, yeah, there's a lot of mirrors in what we're doing, I have to admit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I work, I work part-time for Barney, um, about 20, 25 hours a week. Um, and I knew Barney was wanting to get out. But at the time, Barney was a uh, football development officer at the county. And I knew he was thinking about moving his business on a little bit, um, which he did part-time when he worked for the FA. Uh, and I literally saw the advert in a newspaper in the Evening Chronicle when it used to do a job section. Um, applied for it and, and was fortunate enough to get a football development officer where I started 1st of May 2003. So remember the day? I, I remember the day, absolutely, because I went out and bought myself a new car the day after. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your first opportunities within the job did you have much responsibility or did you just get eased into it um it, you know what it was kind of dropped in and sink or swim um you look at county fa's now where they've got a staff of you know approaching 20 quite a few of them now in, in various different roles at the time we started there was three of us uh plus some admin staff um so in terms of football development we did everything. We did. A, we were a one-stop shop. We did disability. We did women and girls. We did uh, mini soccer, adult eleven v eleven, youth football, working with clubs and leagues, club development, and coach education as well as that. Um, we're fortunate now that it's a little bit better resourced from the FA, which is great. Um, and those roles have become a lot more um, specific. And expertise is is now developed across a range of different facilities within each county FA. Um, and that's what it needs, you know. It's the it's the biggest participation sport in the world, particularly obviously in our country. And I think it needs to be resourced well because if you look at the grassroots level, um, there's two things grassroots needs is one volunteers because without them the football world doesn't exist, and secondly yeah. it needs investment and investment across the board. Um, and I think now we're probably going to see that 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 needs to happen at a little bit more of a quicker pace. Mm-hmm. So, how does how did your previous job role to the FA change? Did it, has it has it changed to your current job? Would you say much? Um, if so, it, it it has and it hasn't. I suppose the day to day stuff is is very much running a business, which I'd never done before. Um, I'd, yeah. I'd managed budgets, I'd managed work programs, which you still have to do running your own business. But I think when you're your own boss, you'll know yourself. Um, you, you know, when you get out of bed, it's up to you what you do. Um, but the good thing is, you know, from, from having those role models when I was a kid, you know, instilled a pretty good work ethic. Um, and you want to try and maximize what you can get out of the day. Um, the actual knowledge is, is an interesting one because when I went into CDM role, I didn't really have a huge background in facility development, but now it's what I, I, you know, hopefully quote unquote, get a little bit of expertise out of that. Um, so that is just transferring that into the different roles and responsibilities that the business has. So it's, you know, it's initial consultation with a club um, right the way through to managing uh, usage plans, managing budgets, and then delivering the project ultimately. So um, we have a different role. I used to play the role of the one who coordinated everything on behalf of the FA. And now I'm one of the ones who goes in and consults mm-hmm. to support a client group or a client base uh, at a club. Right, so that links briefly on uh, what I was going to ask you next. Um, can you describe or outline just a typical busy day in the life of Mark Otto? <laughs> uh, probably better off asking my wife, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I think, you know, the, the day starts very much as it always does. You know, get up, feed the dogs, walk the dogs, get the little one ready for, for whatever he's doing the day. Uh, and generally, my day starts at home. I'm home-based. Um, mm-hmm. 
we try and ensure that the diary is pretty much full on a two-week basis so that we always know what's coming next. Um, but that can vary from, um, at the moment, a lot of, a lot of online meetings, um, client meetings, going to prospective roles and prospective jobs, site visits, um, and then the kind of muck and bullets of doing the work, i.e. pulling those usage plans together, uh, funding appraisals, working through funding applications. Um, and that generally takes up most of the day. Um, but because we're in a volunteer organization or a volunteer sector, um, quite a bit of our work happens on an evening as well when, you know, when the volunteers finish their proper jobs and then go and do the one they're not paid for. So we also offer an opportunity to, to meet with clubs and leagues and, and individuals on an evening. So the days can be pretty long. Um, mm -hmm. The good thing is that you hope by the end of each day you've had something positive and proactive and you've helped somebody out to get to where they want to be, which ultimately yeah. is it's what the business is there for. It's to help people to get to where they want to be as an individual, as a club, as an organization or as a sport. So would you say that was your purpose or, or aim as a business to help others to achieve um, Absolutely. Yeah. their goal? Yeah. Uh, without it. I mean, I think that's, you know, that ultimately that's what we're there for. And by doing that, we hopefully increase participation, which if you've got a, a passion and a drive for sport, that's what you want to see. You want to see more people playing. You want to see more people engaging in sport, making themselves fitter, healthier, mm -hmm. and all of the ramifications that come with that, not only physical, but psychological as well. So getting down to the nitty gritty stats, um, actually, mm -hmm. how much funding and projects have you completed since starting your business? Since I started? Oh, dear me. Um, that's an interesting question because quite a few of them have got long-term Oh, I, think it... <laughs> uh, I think at the moment we're, we're probably taking on major projects. Um, we're on to about 25, 26. Mm -hmm. um, the smaller ones, funding appraisals, things like that, probably topping out 30, 35. Um, and if you add up all of the total project costs, we're probably close to, I would say, maybe 10 million there or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Um, now a, a small percentage of that is ours by the way that's not all of it um, <laughs> but I think the, um, the the challenge is if you're looking at a 3G picture or clubhouse they don't come in pretty much short of a clubhouse is there or there about half a million a 3G pitch is as near as makes no difference three quarters of a million so it doesn't take many of those to get up to those sort of levels but in terms of partnership work we're, we're very proud of what we try and do in terms of funding in that ultimately yeah. our role is to try and access funding so that people can achieve those aspirations whilst also looking at support from national governing bodies. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why we do a little work, bit of work on governance to make sure that they are as fundable as possible. Mm -hmm. So out of all the projects you've completed, which was your favourite one or the one that stood out the most to you? Mm -hmm. um, I suppose there's two. One's the first one. Um, which was we supported North Shields Juniors with a clubhouse redevelopment um, very early on. And the, the second one would be the last project. Whichever one's your last project, that's what you, that's what you I suppose, you, um, you set your stall out to be. You're judged on your last one and you're only as good as your last project. So that, yeah. for me, is always an ongoing, an ongoing piece of work. Good answer. Um, so in terms of plans... Uh, for your business in the future, where would you like to take it? Long-term goal is like all your clients currently based in the UK, or would you like to take it elsewhere as well? Um, they're all based in the UK. Um, we we had a couple of uh, a couple of inquiries from uh, from the Middle East, 
um, mm-hmm. or one or two projects, but ultimately they didn't they didn't come to anything. I, I would say there's there's no limit to what we can potentially achieve, um, and I wouldn't want to set a limit on it. Um, yeah, I think ultimately to provide a professional service is the first thing that we offer to anybody, and that's what we set our stall out um, in that it's bespoke to every person and every organisation that we work to, or work with. Um, I'm sure an aspiration would be to get into international sport. Um, I've always had a, it's a weird kind of dream. I've always wanted to, um, to work alongside the Olympics. Um, mm-hmm. I find the Olympics, the kind of the bastion of, of what sport's supposed to be about. If you take all the politics and everything else out of it. Um, yeah. and that's from watching the Olympics as a, as a kid. Um, I'll never be an Olympian. I don't think, um, so it may well be a case of trying to help and support that in some shape or form, but what that looks like at this moment in time, I've got no idea. Spot on. So taking, going away from your business now and linking back into you when you started coaching 15, 16, how long have you been coaching from and how did you originally get into it? How did you start at 15 and 16? Can you remember how you remember how you started? I can, yes. It's too many years ago to remember. And if I tell you when I was doing it, you'll work out how old I am. Um, <laughs> I uh, I went on work experience at the Football Development Scheme um, in, God, 1993, I think it was. Uh, and on the back of that, I volunteered to help coach on a Saturday morning at Montague Boys Club on Pooley oh, Road yes. in Newcastle um, with Peter Winsper and Paul Winsper, um, who you might know as well um, from from previous previous lives, I suppose. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years on a volunteer basis while I was getting my coaching awards, coaching badges. Um, and that kind of puts you in the deep end of a 15, 16 year old lad going in and, and working with coaches who were very good at the trade, really knowledgeable, really enthusiastic and very, very positive and ultimately great with the kids. Um, mm-hmm. And they kind of set the tone. And I stayed there for five or six years doing that for four hours every Saturday morning Um Loved every minute of it as I worked through my coaching awards. Um, and then I suppose it was very much a case of, well, I've got my level two or, or what level two would be now. It was a prelim when I did it um, and wanted to progress on and, and work with older players and then work with adults in the long term. Managed to um, to get myself to university, got a degree in sport and physiology. And during that time, I coached the university side. Um, got a load of uh, really good experience, some good, some bad. Um, but also played um, and at the end of that managed to get myself into a position where I worked with Barney, uh, then worked with the County FA and, and started to coach that way. Um, I think that the biggest achievement that that I would see in a coaching side for me is getting me a licence in 2010 mm-hmm. and that was only possible with, with a lot of support from the team I was working at at the moment, um, who you very well know. Um, so Newcastle University were hugely influential and supportive of me working towards that goal. And I started there in 2007. Um, and again, um, very cold Monday night down at Benfield School um, with a group of group of lads the first time you meet them. Um, it's always a challenge when, at the time, I was relatively young. Um, and you've got to set your stall out of how you want to do things, the way you want to do it. Um, and we managed to have a really good eight years, uh, finishing in 2015, with um, a lot of success. We had a lot of success in the books championships uh, and got several promotions. Um, but I think our, our biggest challenge and our biggest achievement um, was not probably football related. It was about what impact we had with the players. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we were fortunate hugely fortunate to work with some very very good dedicated players who let's be fair were at university first and foremost to to get their their academic knowledge and their ability uh, and get their degree um we work with many many players who were probably capable of playing at a lot a bigger high standard a uh, far higher standard than they were um but yeah. because of the decisions they had made they wanted to go down the academic route um and we finished that with a with a uh, a league and cup double in 2015 we won the northumberland minor cup um, and we also got promotion in the books league. Um, following that, we um, the the decision was made. They wanted a long term full time role at the university, which we couldn't mm-hmm. commit to. Um, and we managed to hopefully pass on the reins to Neil Bastow, who's doing a fantastic job there now, uh, and has got the club into the, into the Northern League, which is a great achievement. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, it's the, the biggest achievement, I suppose, is is how you've managed to shape a team over a period of three years. Uh, and then every three years, you you pretty much get a brand new cohort. So you have to reinvent yourself, reinvent the team and start again. And that's what we, we did on, what I suppose, three different turnovers within that eight-year period. So, um, and I'm very proud of that. So do you know how you said when you went into the team originally at Newcastle University, you said you were quite young when you first started. How did you get them players to buy into you and your philosophy when you first went into the club? Because obviously they're students and they're not getting, they weren't getting paid, were they? No, no, no. 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 So, so they were yeah. just there for their academics. You were there obviously to progress yourself and to work towards your UEFA. How did you yeah. get the players alongside you and into your goal as well? Um, I think it, it takes a bit of transition. I don't think it's there straight away, but one of my, my biggest... Um, passions within coach and I think is is the qualities that you need and I think that for me the first and foremost one you need to have is honesty um, and I think that's what you should be with players and they should be with you and ultimately that's all players want you to be is honest with them um, and we we set that out right from the start um, we involved the players at the start of the season we involved them with a little bit of decision making of where they wanted to take themselves and how we could try and help um, we then put together a plan of how we were going to get there, how we were going to achieve it as a group. Um, and that's the key to it. If you get everybody buying into where you want to go to, it's a lot easier to get them there than, than forcing or instilling something on people who don't want to do it. Um, and that doesn't mean that the, the players ruled the roost by any stretch of the imagination. But I think they were involved in the process and that process evolved. Um, I would say probably the first two years were the most challenging to, to get them bought into the way we wanted to play. Um, we had a particular way of wanting to play. Um, we were we liked to play football, and bearing in mind we played in the local leagues as well. Um, we played Wednesdays in books. We played Saturdays in the Northern Alliance. Two very different challenges, um, but ultimately the DNA of the team remained the same: that we wanted to play and we wanted to play properly. Um, mm-hmm. Ultimately, whether or not it's a, a setup thing, we always had a, a game plan for each individual team we played, um, strengths and weaknesses. And also try to play to our strengths whilst trying to eliminate their weaknesses. Um, the challenge for us was you have you could have one team on a Wednesday and then some of the lads weren't available. You know, half the team that's wouldn't ex- be available. That's on exactly what I was going to ask you. How did how did you how did you manage with that? Because as as a coach, I could imagine that being very frustrating. Obviously, you're getting judged by a university based on your results and what you're achieving if you're playing in a local league and you were only allowed to use what university students at the time yeah how how were you able to deal with 
the constant change within the environment and the personnel because obviously all the academy coaches, all the other Northern League teams or Northern Alliance teams have the same players in it week in, week out while that's constantly changing for you. How did you deal with that? Because not many coaches um, would experience that. I think it's about um, it, knowing your players first and foremost and and not necessarily turning them into... Uh, people who can only become one-dimensional players, but know what the roles and responsibilities are within the team. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tried to do that across the board um, in that we we worked through the squads of all of the teams in the same way. So we got the thirds, the seconds and the firsts to play in the same format. Um, mm-hmm. We got them to play in the same kind of way. And that then allowed us to effectively parachute players in when we needed to and they would know what their role and responsibility was. And yeah. it, it broke down into three areas. So in possession, not in possession, when possession changed, what do we do as a team? And once we managed to get that fundamental transferred across to the players, it was then about the nuances, the, the devils in the detail then, the real small technical details and the information that you can transfer. Because ultimately our job is to help the players become better. And mm-hmm. you know, none of those players were, were how shall I put it, they, they weren't daft lads by any stretch of the imagination. They're all bright kids. Um, so they knew, most of them knew what they were, were there to do. I think the challenge is, is, is identifying a particular area where they can improve and develop and, and help them to achieve that. And most of that is about listening. You know, you can give your snippets of information as and when you want to, but ultimately you've got to listen to um, their input. Um, you've also got to give them the opportunity to make the right choice, which I think a lot of coaches choose not to. They want to kind of throw out all our knowledge straight away. Well, yeah. if you don't ask the right question, you don't, you don't, necessarily get the right answer um so give them the opportunity to get the right answer if they don't then you can drive that forward and look to to support them to get to where they want to be so you briefly said that you achieved your most success in the last season that you had with them in 2015 of getting a cup double what do you think was the main factor down to achieving that success that season um I think to be honest with you, I, I, I would I would say two things. There was a there was a definite drive within that team to achieve. Um, we were currently playing the highest level that they had done in books at that time, um, and we wanted to try and push that forward. Um, the players were great. We had a really good group of players. I have to be honest. Um, they perhaps weren't the most technically gifted players that we'd had, um, but they were certainly. Uh, a good a good group of them were amongst the most driven and committed group of players that we had and ultimately they wanted to learn um, and the one thing we had at that point was we had a, a belief and the belief was that irrespective of um, factors which weren't under our control we would still come out on top and we believed that every time we walked on the pitch and that was that was quite nice even you know if you go a goal down you, you get a man sent off whatever else it may be um, we had, we still had the belief that we were going to go on and win the game, um, and you know we take it back to the, the minor cup final um, where we didn't play very well. On balance, we probably were the worst team, uh, the poor of the two teams, but we we managed to hang on, uh, and ultimately we got the job done, which is what we wanted to do. Now, yes, you can think, isn't it nice to play ninety minutes or one hundred and twenty minutes of great football? But ultimately, in a cup final, you remember the win, um, and that's what we did. Um, and all credit to the players for doing that. There was a few who, um, who, I suppose, took a bit of time to to believe that that's what we could achieve. Um, but all mm-hmm. credit to them that went out and did it. So, very proud. 
Spot on. So throughout the years, um, what what would you say is the most rewarding part of being a football coach? Um, seeing players improve and to go on achieve their potential. Um, mm-hmm. We've been fortunate enough to uh, to see a few players move through um, into the professional game, um, which is great. But you still don't. I suppose the outcome never changes from when you're working with a four, five-year-old who's never played the game before, brand new, um, and you almost have that blank canvas to to help them to get where they want to be, which ultimately at that age should be about enjoying the game, learning the basics, learning technical ability, um, and playing with their mates and their friends. Um, Right the way to the other end of it, where we we sent a few off from university onto scholarship in in America, which is fantastic. Um, We've had players move up leagues as well, so bearing in mind that I suppose as a coach, your your impact is pretty much limited anyway. Um, the fact that you can have a small small impact on somebody's ability to improve and get better, that for me is why I did it. And ultimately, I, I suppose it's the same as a business. We want to help people to get the way they want to be. Mm-hmm. So flip that on over, flip it on its head. What's the most stressful part of being a football coach? <laughs> um, all the things you can't control. Um, and I suppose the other one is it's it's a good one to have is that players who aren't in the team aren't happy, and that's a good thing. Um, yeah, I think it goes back to what I said. One of my fundamental principles is honesty. Um, and whenever we put players into the team or whenever we took players out of a team, um, we were always honest with them, and there was a reason behind it. Um, and I think they respected that, and that would be the other key impact for me. I think you've got to have mutual respect mm-hmm. um, to your players your coaching staff uh, and everybody else involved at the club at the time that you, you, you get what you give. So from that point of view, if you're honest, you'll get it back. And if you respect them, you'll get it back as well. Um, some would say it's something else that you rise on. I'm as great as I am, but Hey, there we go. <laughs> no, I totally agree on that because I feel like once your manager or other players start disrespecting or being dishonest towards you, that's when the respect just goes and that's, that, that affects the performance on the pitch as well. But throughout your experiences in coaching and being so heavily involved in sport, what have you learned about local football, the local football community? So it's very diverse. <laughs> I think that's the first one. It's a it's a uh, very it's a very broad question. Like <laughs> it, it's a very broad church is football as well. I have to admit. Um, I think there are uh, the, the biggest thing that stands out for me is the amount of hours that volunteers put in, unseen yeah. hours. Um, and I think if you it it would be really difficult to put a, a value on that. Um, you know, mm. if you if you put a, a a token value of ten pound an hour per volunteer, per mm-hmm. week, per club, per county, you know, you're coming out at, at hundreds of millions of pounds every year that are given free to help kids improve. Um, and that that community in itself is what the word community is. Um, yes, there's rivalry and there's challenges within that as well. But I think that the fact that everybody wants to try and get um, involved in a sport for... Uh, intrinsic values I suppose rather than extrinsic in that they're getting enjoyment out of it uh, a little bit of fun out of it hopefully as well and some sense of pride and purpose Um, that for me is the standout thing because let's be honest people don't continue to do things over and over again unless they enjoy it and 
and and that goes to the same as the players. I think you know, particularly in a grassroots level at, at young ages, um, there is there's almost a race to get to the end. Well, actually, let's enjoy the journey while we get there, um, yeah, as opposed totally. to, to going towards the end game. Um, kids are kids; you've got to let them be kids. You know, if they're good enough, they'll get there. Um, yes, we can help them out, but in the same token, it's about giving them a rounded upbringing. And that isn't playing every night of the week, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. Um, you know, there's an opportunity to play other sports. They should be encouraged to play other sports and take other activities up, whether or not, you know, that's just going out in the countryside and having a run about in the grass. Um, they shouldn't be focused at a young age into one particular sport. Um, and I believe passionately that that isn't the way that you should go. Um, let kids be kids, let them enjoy themselves and let them find their own path to a certain extent. Um, there's too much challenge to, to specify at a young age for me. I think you've got to give people the opportunity to experience what they want to do first and foremost. Yeah, totally. And I, I definitely agree with that, Mark, because obviously in my last year of university, I'd done my dissertation. Obviously, that took a lot of research and a lot of opinions, a lot of facts. And I actually done my dissertation on early specialisation or for kids to play other sport or just play one sport and focus on that. And long term, if the pressure of the parents and trying to pursue a career in just one sport, uh, one sport, the long term motivation of trying to keep motivated and trying to achieve the best constantly over so many years, kids just eventually drop off the boil. And that's why... I think if you you know if you start playing football at five and six year old and that's all you do until you're thirteen or fourteen and you can make your own opinion, why do we mm-hmm. suddenly see a huge drop off at that age band? Yeah, it, it makes sense. You know, they, they could play God knows how many games by the time they uh, by the time they're thirteen and fourteen and trained for so many hours. If you don't have any change in that, and that is literally a routine that you get into year after year after year, when they have a decision to make, i.e my mum, my dad, whoever it is, takes us to football, doesn't take us anymore and I go myself, well, I'm not going to do it because I'm bored. Yeah. Um, we need to give kids the opportunity to do a range of different sports because ultimately they will pick up transferable skills from every sport they do, whatever yeah. they choose to specify in the long term. I think it's quite worrying as well when people just specialise in one sport because a kid might be very, very quick, but he might decide to play a sport which he might not, benefit from uh, that skill like you say talent transfer you might not I think there was a study in America where some high jumper some basketball player was really you know some high jumper was really good at high jump and then he came into basketball and he became one of the best possible there was because of them fast twitch muscle fibers etc I don't want to get into the science of it but like you you say it's it's that uncertainty of not knowing your potential and something else. Like I could still be a very, very, very good rugby player because my agility might be really good on the ball, um, et cetera, et cetera. So like you say, I feel like kids definitely need to take up more than just one sport when they're young. Obviously, I feel like schools and also after school clubs need to pay more part into that because I feel like locally within the local area how many you don't really see as many I don't know like tennis clubs I think there's only one in where I live and then there's mm-hmm. about four or five football clubs so yeah it's, uh, it's, it's the challenge is is you you know you can only play a certain sports if the facility's there to do so yeah um, it relates back to your job actually <laughs> absolutely it's perfect 
Uh, you've done quite well to segue that in. I'm quite impressed. Um, I think the challenge is that, you know, we need good quality facilities, whatever sport it is. Um, we need investment. We need to also see and recognise the importance of sport. And particularly now we're coming out of lockdown. I think sport has never been more important to such a wider group of society um, for the physical improvements, for the psychological improvements, and ultimately to get people engaging again, socially distant, which you can do. Um, the challenges is how we do that. Um, and I think ultimately it comes down to money. Um, mm -hmm. And if the money's there and the money's available, fantastic, we can go in and do that. I think the challenge is we need to make the money available. Um, yeah. And that's not just to improve my business and, and, and keep the wolves from the door. Um, that's to have an impact upon the wider society because if you look at um, the impact sport has and if you set the tone at a young age to ensure that kids are engaged in sport, whatever sport it is, it's a lifelong habit. And we need to instill that at a very, very young age so that they don't become the ones who are a lost generation to, well, PE was me running around the, the school field 10 times for an hour. That's yeah. not sport. It's not PE. That is pain. Um, you know, what you want them to do is engage with whatever sport they want to do, whatever physical activity they want to do, and maintain that throughout their life. What I'll do, right, I've got a list of subjects or topics which are in within sport they're all very very interesting and i know we could talk for days on them but i'm only going to yeah. pick two okay right on. so what are your thoughts on the current coach and player education courses are they good enough to help develop the best coaches possible and should they be cheaper available okay. and should there be compulsory parent education especially for those in the academy i don't know if there is that's why i'm asking but should it be compulsory it might be optional but should it be compulsory there for grassroots as well um to answer the first one i think um i've kind of been out of the coach education process for a wee while now but certainly from um the last 15 20 years where i was involved in it um the coach education courses um, evolved into something completely alien to what they were when I first started and the changes were for the better. They were more player emphasised and player focused, more coach focused uh, and they had a wider remit. So, you know, for example, the four corner learning model was, you know, it was talked about very, very briefly um, but now it almost underpins everything people try and do uh, or it certainly did when I was in, it was in coach education um, I think they are more suitable to uh, grassroots coaches to a certain level, but I also feel there's a glass ceiling in that, you know, if you are a proactive coach and you want to improve and increase your knowledge base, um, yes, there's a place for certain levels of qualification only being available either to semi-pro or professional teams and professional clubs. Um, but there needs to be something subsidiary alongside that for working in grassroots because ultimately if you want to work in grassroots, you're going to have an impact on every player that goes to play a professional play, professional game. So why would you not want to have your knowledge at the same level? You might not have the ability to use it with a high quality players, but that yeah. shouldn't stop you from doing so. Mm. Um, in terms of cost, um, Costs are really interesting one because I think it's, you know, it, we're talking about qualification and it yeah. defines what people want out of coaching. 
do they see it as a profession? Do they see it as a career? Coaching's probably more of a profession now than it ever has been. And like any profession, there are qualifications that are mandatory to do so, and they take a cost. Um, you know, a cost is a cost, and, I, and that sounds a bit like a cop-out, but in the same token, I think I paid, God, back in the day, I paid 100 quid for my UA for B. 100 pounds, and I think it's I what, six I'm paying eight times that now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think what you're looking at then is one is is inflation, and two, um, I think the resources are better now. You know, digitally, the resources are better now. Um, not necessarily the knowledge, because my tutors were first class, every one of them. Um, yeah. And I, th- I think a lot of the coach education is based upon the tutor that you have. Um, and it's the same as the coaches that you have and the managers that you have. You know, if you get a really positive, um, enthusiastic, knowledgeable coach who has experience, then you can learn a lot from that person and that almost you can't put a value on. Yeah, and that's definitely. why a lot of the things that, that, that I think are are coming to the front now are, are coach of the coach events. You know, all the county FAs or most of them have those. Um, and it's about having that 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 thirst for learning, I suppose, and that that yearning to want to, to improve and make yourself better. Um, I think the day that you think you know everything is the day that you go, thanks very much, I'm off. Yeah. Definitely, and then I don't should, know if that answers your question. Um, um, last, that one more. Should there be compulsory parent education? Um, I think there should be. Yes, I'm going to say yes. I think there should, um, and I don't think you know parent is a kind of an overarching uh, term. If you want, oh guardian, it sorry. Be, it should be spectator. Ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, um. The vast majority of spectators and parents are there for the right reasons, fully supportive and everything else like that. I think the worry and the concern is that not everybody is like that. And there's a definite transfer from people who are mild-mannered and quiet during their day and their job and whatever else they do. And then they get on the side of a football pitch and they just switch personality, Um, which which is... is odd to me and I don't think it's just football uh, I mean I had, a, I had a pretty long career playing tennis when I was a kid and some of the parents antics that I had to sit on the other side of the fence, other side of the net and watch were just unbelievable I think it's about what value they put on their impact and the impact that that can have on their son their daughter whoever's playing um, I think they need to ensure that they are supportive they're challenging in an appropriate manner where they need to be, but they also need to know where their boundary is. If you've mm-hmm. got a volunteer coach who's given up their time, effort and energy to support your son or your daughter, I think you've instilled on them um, a responsibility, so you should let them do that. You might not necessarily agree, but I think how you then voice that disagreement is is really important. Yeah, definitely. So linking back to what we've been discussing previously throughout this podcast, do you agree with academies from a young age? Should the should the best um, entailing the best coaches around? Should kids have access to that from the beginning, or should they go and enjoy grassroots football with a level one, level two coach? Um, very very big debate. It is. Um, for me, I think I can't see the point in taking players until they are at least 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. They want to play them with their mates. 
yeah. that's ultimately what they want to do. You know, kids at a certain age will see football as something they do for fun and with friends. And you can define, I suppose, the, the question we used to often get asked when we did Coach Ed was, what does fun look like? Mm-hmm. Well, ask the kids, they'll tell you. Uh, and they'll pretty much tell you really quick if it isn't fun. Um, I think they do have. A, I think academies do have a place. I just think there is too much onus on getting them in very quickly, very young, and then at the other end, what happens? So the successful yeah. ones progress and move forward. What happens to the ones that don't, and what happens to their transition back into the grassroots game? And I'll hold my hands up and say I don't know. Um, it's not an area that I've been particularly involved in. Um, but I think there's a lot to be said for letting players learn the values of the game. Um, if they're coached right, and we hope coach education is doing the right thing, uh, and mm. that falls back on the county FAs and the FA in the football's context, um, if we can instill those good habits in the coaches to transfer the knowledge across to the players, they will get that. Um, and once they're in a position where they can start to make their own decisions where they want to be, um, we've all seen the kid who's at training who doesn't want to be there um, yeah. and you know even gets to an academy level and is doing it for his mum and his dad not for himself or herself um, I think we just need to be a little bit more flexible in what that academy process looks like and also the transition back into grassroots game mm-hmm. because I know a lot of the lads that I know my age who went through the academy process they said yes best experience of my life but then when the transition from out of the academy, their mental health was rocketed because all they, all they were familiar to was going to the training ground each day or a stadium to yeah. play a game. They weren't used to going on a roof and doing roofing because that's what some yeah. of them have been doing now. And it's mm-hmm. like a totally different transition. And are Premier League clubs, Championship, League One, League Two, are they doing enough to all the FA to ensure that there's a career for them outside of the academies? Because um, I know for I, a fine I, fact, some of them about, haven't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about how they prepare them yeah. um, to go back into grassroots. Um, if they don't, mm-hmm. you know, if they're not at the level that academy will move them forward. The preparation is the key part to it. Um, because, you know, everybody walking into that academy for the first time thinks, right, this is the first step going on to being a pro. Um, yeah. We all know the percentage that ultimately get there and the ones that don't, and the vast majority don't. Um, I think there's probably more they can do with that transition back into it. But, you know, as I say, I don't know a huge amount about what happens yeah. within that. I know there's education programs that are based in place now, um, which have improved over the years as well. Um, I suppose it's just making that as easy a transition as possible because that rejection can, can stay with somebody for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. And I think how that rejection is potentially managed and what the impact that has, not only on the child, but also on the wider family. Yeah, definitely. So I'll start around this podcast off. Um, mm-hmm. Just touching upon, just advice for others, if I'm honest. Um, for anyone listening, wanting, wanting to become self-employed within the sports industry, what would you recommend for them to do? Um, be persistent. Um, I think you will get a lot of knockbacks. Uh, I've had many. You know, if you think about my year license, I didn't pass first time. Um, and it, the, the easiest option is to give up. Um, but I think, you know, if you've set yourself a goal and you want to achieve that goal, um, nothing ever worth happening comes easy. 
Yeah. Uh, and nothing ever that's worth getting comes easy. So you know what? You have to take the knockbacks. It's it's about the opportunity and it's a big cliche. If you get knocked down nine times, you get back up every time. Um, mm-hmm. And you've got to make sure that no matter what your knockbacks are, you, you can remain positive. And that's easier said than done. Um, yeah. It is, it's completely different from being salaried and having a, having a quote unquote proper job. Um, mm-hmm. Having your own business is something that is um, hugely rewarding, um, hugely challenging. Um, but ultimately, you make of it what you can. And certainly the, the last few months we've seen that and there's been some really unfortunate uh, businesses that won't make it through. We've been fortunate that we will. Um, but again, that's about being diverse and, and also adapting what your offer is. And that goes across coaching as well. You know, if you are a one-trick pony and you can deliver one way and that's how you deliver, um, you're not going to get very far. You need to have that flexibility and that ability to change and adapt to your environment and your surroundings. Yeah, definitely. That's something I've found for myself, that adaptability is key regardless because times will change, but you've got to change with the times. And that's what, linking back to football, some Premier Premier League managers have discovered. Um just a tactic won't be if you if you keep on tactic like you say it's not going to be successful long term because others will then become better or they'll find a way around it it's 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 a world where every day people are looking to improve or find new methods to become the best and they'll do that at any cost any amount of knowledge so it is all about adaptability, like you said, at the end of the day. So just strive for excellence, ultimately. Yeah, definitely. So three random questions I like to give everyone at the end. I like to try and change <laughs> them up. Um, the, last, the, last, the last person I had on, John Murray, uh, he actually answered this one quite surprisingly. So I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer on this one. <laughs> uh, if you could change careers right this second, what would you do and why? Uh, I would be a doctor. A doctor. Last question yeah. I've got, last answer story I've got was a postman. A postman. <laughs> and that was a BBC broadcaster. That, that took us by surprise. That. Why, would you say, why doctor? Um, again, it goes back to the intrinsic value of wanting to help people. Um, yeah. And and many would say that if I'd actually bothered to do any work at school, that's what I should have been in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you have delusions of grandeur of where you're going to play next, don't you? So you tend not yeah. to do any work at school. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I would be. Again, ultimately helping people, which is what I like to do. Yeah, spot on. Good answer. Um, so what sports invention do you think will be popular in 10 to 20 years' time? I always like this one. Um... <laughs> Already got VAR now. Yeah, that, that's a whole different debate all on its own. That one. Um, <laughs> I, I I just think um, data collection, yeah, and and the amount of information that you can have to make very very small percentage gains, mm-hmm. um, improve and have an added advantage above your opponent. Um, what that looks like, I don't know. Whether that's biomechanics, whether it's physiological. Um, whether it's psychological uh, and advances are happening across those three different parameters every day. Um, yeah. I think a combination of those and people wanting to be open to receiving them 
is something yeah. that I think uh, will come become more apparent year on year. You look at the 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 attention to detail Jurgen Klopp's got, for example, Pep Guardiola. Their preparation and attention to detail is is very very high. I think oh, that will that almost the norm, and and yeah. I think that is uh, that'll be the significant difference. And how we, um, I suppose, how you rate them, and also how you get the data, that'll be the challenge. Yeah, totally. It was like Jurgen Klopp appointing a Fruin coach. I've never heard of one of them before. Imagine getting one of them for Newcastle University. They'd think you're crackers, mate. <laughs> there was enough getting you done as a goalkeeping coach for years. <laughs> um, right, last question. If you could pick three athletes or coaches to work alongside in your football squad, so you could have three players or three coaches, could be a physiotherapist, could be doctor, could be assistant coach, um, who would you have and why? It can be anyone. It could be locally. It could be elite game. Oh, right. So, uh, you know what? I would have, uh, first and foremost, I'd have um, Pep Guardiola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have him not, I would have him as a player. Right. Um, just somebody I admired as a player uh, for many, many years. Um, gives added value. Um, can I also choose local people, can I? Yeah, yeah, and, and not non, non-elite. Um, <laughs> I would. I'm going to choose four as well. Actually, I'm going to be really oh, rude no. and choose the extra one. So he would be the pro. I would have. I'd have. Um, I'd have Barney in me in me pack. So I'd have Barney mm-hmm. Jones there as coach. Uh, I'd have Richard Nugent mm-hmm. um, from a, a psychological side of things, who is um, probably one of the most influential people I've ever met for working in that six inches between your ears. Um, fantastic um, a fantastic professional at what he does um, and the last one weirdly enough um, if I was in the trenches with somebody in a game and it got and it got tough uh, I'd have Jamie Gavin who works for the BBC now alright Jamie spot um, on that's, a, that's an interesting one yeah like he's, um, you know what um, I think you'd be the first to admit not a hugely you know, not one of the top 10 technical players that we've ever worked with, but for attitude, passion, drive, commitment and work ethic, you couldn't ask for a better person. And I think as a role model for a young player, um, Jamie would be great to have. Spot on. Good answer, mate. Right. Thanks a lot for coming on. Covered quite a lot, actually. A couple of bits right. we didn't get it gone through, but we could have talked for days about them. Uh, but no no thanks a lot for coming on Mark really appreciate your time pleasure no problem at all nice to talk to you John yes thanks a lot